I want you to turn with me to the eighth chapter of Romans and the 28th verse that all of you know by heart anyway. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. And then in Genesis, the 50th chapter and the 20th verse, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. And of course, that takes us back to the life and times of Joseph. Joseph lived in what people today might call a blended family. His father had 12 sons born of four different mothers. Joseph's mother was dead, Rachel. His father had three living wives. And there was a lot of rivalry and jealousy and anger in his family. Joseph was a victim in reverse of discrimination. He was a victim of favoritism. His father loved him more than he loved all of his brothers. And he made him a special, beautiful coat. And they all became jealous. And his brothers hated him because he was the favorite son of his father. But Joseph became a victim also of cruelty. His brothers were grazing their flocks and his father said, go and see how your brothers are getting along. And they saw him coming. And they said, let's do away with Joseph. Let's kill him. And let's take his coat and put some animal blood on it and show it to our father and he will know that he'd been eaten by these wild animals. And so they put him in a pit. And they were talking, sitting around talking about what to do with him. And Reuben, the oldest brother, said, no, let's don't kill him. Let's, let's just leave him here and we don't want his blood on our hands. And then some Ishmaelites came along and they said, let's sell him as a slave. Then we won't even know what happened to him. It won't be blood on us. So they sold him to these Ishmaelites who were on the way to Egypt. They sold him as a slave and he became a slave. And he was put on the auction block down in Egypt and sold. He decided to trust the Lord with all his heart and follow him. And Joseph could have become bitter against God, but instead he turned to God, kept on with his walk with God. He cried out to God. And God wants to be with all of us, but he awaits our invitation. God does not force his way into anybody's life. You invite him in and he comes in. The Lord was with Joseph. The Bible says in Genesis 39 too, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. He prospered and my, how he did prosper. Potiphar, the man who bought him, began to see that he had talents above anybody he'd ever met. And he made him, he put him in charge of all his estate. Everything except his wife was in the charge of Joseph. And he was a very handsome man, as one of the translations tells us. And he attracted the attention of Potiphar's wife. And she would say to him, Joseph, come and sleep with me. And Joseph would say, no. And one time she grabbed him and she said, come sleep with me. And he said, no, how can I do this terrible thing to your husband when he's trusted me? And how can I sin against God? The reason he wouldn't was primarily because of the sin against God. He refused out of love for God. And that ought to be our motivation in saying no to those things that are wrong that come along. 
Now, it would seem to me that God would reward him for being so faithful and so true. Instead, he was falsely accused because Potiphar's wife began to yell and the other servants came in and she said, this Hebrew slave that my husband brought down here has tried to rape me. Here's his coat. He left it behind. And so Potiphar came and he was very angry with Joseph and had him thrown in prison. He got thrown in prison, but God was still with Joseph even in the prison. If you take a stand for God, I want to tell you something. If you take a stand for the Lord in your school, in the place you work, in your home, in your community, it's going to cost you. You may lose a job or a promotion or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a friend. It may cost you deeply, but God has something wonderful out there for you if you're faithful. God rewarded Joseph with his presence and his peace and his strength. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. His body was locked up in prison, but his spirit was free. Joseph was also a young man who realized God's design for his life. Thirteen years, think of it now, thirteen years after being sold into slavery, God brought Joseph through a series of events out of prison and gave him an authority in Egypt. Now at the age of 30, he becomes prime minister of Egypt. And God used difficult circumstances to help Joseph break out of the prison of himself. The amazing thing about Joseph's life to me is that all the points where he could have turned away from God in anger and disappointment, he didn't. He turned to God. He allowed all of these circumstances to mold and develop him and mature him into a great man of God and a great leader. Joseph could have said, how can I amount to anything when I have to grow up in this kind of family? How can I amount to anything when I have to be in prison so much? How can I amount to anything when I have such suffering? I don't even have a formal college or university training. How can I amount to anything? But he was faithful to God. He had the most important thing. The scripture says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's where you start learning is with God. God performed the first marriage in the Garden of Eden. And it was God's idea to have a family in the first place. Before the cities and governments, written language, before nations, temples, churches, there were families and the family is the most important institution in the world. The first miracle that Jesus ever performed was at a wedding at Cana of Galilee. And Jesus was underscoring the importance of the home because if the home goes, the nation is going to go. Many today are wringing their hands with fear and insecurity. But more important than what happens at Wall Street or what happens at the United Nations is what is happening to our families. In the home, character is formed. Integrity is born. Values we live by are made clear. Goals are set. Attitudes are formed that last a lifetime. Is your home built on a solid foundation? That's the question I want to ask. Remember the man Jesus told about that built his house on a rock? Is your house built on a rock? Is your home secure tonight? Or is it filled with tension? Is it about ready to break up? Our modern life puts tremendous pressures 
on the home and the family. You know some of the pressures that the home faces today. It reminds me of Nehemiah, the fourth chapter, where the scripture says there is much rubbish so that we're not able to build a wall. And we see rubbish everywhere. Rubbish on television and in films and in magazines. Making fun of the home, making fun of marriage, making light of one of the holiest of all institutions, the marriage. And God has indicated from one end of the word to the other that when the home fails, the society is going to fail. And I tell you this, unless we have a spiritual revival and our homes are renewed, the nation is going to be destroyed. There's no way that we can escape the judgment of God unless we come back to Christian or to God-fearing homes. But there's a satanic attack on the family today. Even Christian families are feeling it. I've never heard so many stories of Christian families even having so much tension and so much difficulty. We've never had more books on the bookshelves telling us how to solve our family problems or sexual problems than we have today. And yet somehow we're more miserable, we're more broken, we're more torn, we're more hurt than we've ever been. Why? Because we have not taken the Word of God into account because God has laid down the rules and the regulations for a successful and happy home. And we've broken them. We thought we could do it some other way and we found that we failed. Let's come back to the Bible. Let's come back to the Word of God and build our homes on this book and the God that performed the first marriage. God is interested in your family, your marriage, your children. He shows us the ideals and the goals for the family and he's willing to help us. Ezra said, then I proclaimed a fast there to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones. Seeking God's will for your family. That's what Ezra was doing. Seeking the will of God for his family. Have you sought God's will? Have you gotten on your knees and committed your children to the Lord time after time? The answer is God. The answer is spiritual. The answer is surrendering your heart and your life to Jesus Christ as parents, as children, so that every member of the home knows Jesus Christ and loves the Word of God. Let the love of Christ dominate your family, dominate your relationships within the family, and you can have a wonderful home. It's not too late to repair it. It's not too late to change. You can start tonight. Now tonight, I want you to turn to, with me to the 90th Psalm. The 90th Psalm. I want to speak tonight on the brevity of life. The 10th verse of the 90th Psalm. The days of our years are threescore years and 10. That's 70. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore, that's 80. Yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, 
that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Do you number your days? Do you realize how important every single day is? The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, the scripture says. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I'm withered like grass. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Think of it. God will endure forever. But on this earth, we're like a shadow that's declining. We're all dying. From the moment you were born, you started dying. Because we're all heading toward death. Every one of us under the sentence of death. There won't be anybody in this audience alive, I'd say 90 years from tonight. Nobody. We'll all be gone. And what are you going to do with those years? Each human being has exactly the same number of hours and minutes every day. Do you know how many minutes there are in a day? 1,440. Do you know how many hours there are in a week? 168. Now, if you live to be 70, your first 15 is childhood or adolescent. You spend 20 years in bed. The last five years are physical limitations and you're curtailing your activities. That means you only have 30 years left for everything else. 30 years to live. And part of that time has to be spent eating and working and figuring up your income tax. <laughs> the scripture asks this question, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. The oldest of us won't live long. Our time is already in God's hands. God has a day already set for your being taken from this world. It may be in an accident. It may be a cancer. It may be heart attack. Whatever it is, it's already set. And the scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. You will stand before the great judgment of God to give an account of how you spent this life and what you did about Jesus Christ because God gave his son to die for your sins because you see, we're all sinners. We all have the same disease and that spiritual heart disease is called sin. And we're all sinners. It's interesting to me that rich people cannot buy more hours. Scientists cannot invent new minutes. You cannot even save time to spend it on another day. You've got a little time today. You say, well, I'd like to save it up for tomorrow. You can't do that. There's an urgency to time. The Bible says, redeem the time because the days are evil. The days are very evil. I heard about people who tithe their time. We're supposed to tithe our money. 10% of our money belongs to God if you're a Christian. But we can also tithe your time. Take 10% of your time and say, Lord, this is yours for Bible study, for prayer. You have so much time, but for what? You have time to serve Christ. You have time to live according to his will. You have time to obey him. Have you done like the psalmist said in 3115 and put yourself at God's disposal when he said, my times are in your hands? 
And then there's the tyranny of time. It controls us and we become frustrated running from one thing to another because we don't feel that we have enough time to get everything done that needs to be done. Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. The night is going to come to you and you won't have an opportunity to serve God. Serve him while you can. Serve him now. Put him first in your life. Yet at the end of his life, he said, I've finished the work that you gave me to do. God has a plan for your life. And you can finish it with God's help. And he'll give you a joy and a peace that you never dreamed existed if you put your confidence in him. Tonight, I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, the second chapter. 1 Samuel, the second chapter, beginning with verse 12, just a verse here and there. Now the sons of Eli knew not the Lord. The sons of Eli knew not the Lord. And then the 16th verse, Nay, but thou shalt give me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. These were the young sons of Eli, and they sinned against God. And the sin that they committed did not seem to be so grievous to us perhaps today. But they were taking meat that was being offered as a sacrifice, and they were using it for themselves when it was supposed to be well cooked and offered to the Lord as a sacrifice by the priest. And that was their sin. And it was an abhorrence in the sight of God, a sacrilege. And they sinned mightily before God, the scripture says. But the point I want to mention is just one word. But thou shalt give it me now. Give it me now. Spend now and pay later, we're told in television ads and in the newspapers. We're living in a period when everything is instant. Historians may well call this the instant civilization. Everything instantly done. And so today there are thousands of young people that first of all want instant pleasure instead of true happiness. A famous and very beautiful movie star said, I only wanted to find a little happiness in her suicide note. That's the biography of the epitaph of many of us. Going for pleasure instant pleasure instead of true happiness because you see true happiness and peace is found in knowing Jesus Christ and in fellowship with God. The scripture says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Do you know those pleasures that Christ can give? And then secondly, there are those that want instant sex instead of true love. You say, well, Billy, how in the world do you live a clean life sexually in our sex-saturated society? I don't think you can. I really don't. I think the pull is too great, the temptations are too great, apart from God. I think it's almost impossible to live a pure life today with all that you have thrown at you unless you know God. But when you come to Christ, He'll give you the power to say no to temptation. 
Jesus was tempted in every point as we are, yet without sin. And how did he meet the tempter when the tempter came to him? He met him by quoting scripture. He didn't argue with the devil. He didn't debate with him. He just quoted scripture. It was the sword of the word that he used. And then thirdly, instant wealth instead of true treasures. We're living in an affluent society. Now there's nothing in the Bible that says it's wrong to be rich. It's our attitude toward material things. It's our attitude toward money. Now if we make money and share it and know that we're only stewards of it, that it's not ours forever, we use it for the glory of God, then God is pleased with that. Riches cannot satisfy. They don't bring that true happiness and peace that you're looking for. Lay not up for yourselves treasures in heaven, said Jesus, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. You can't take anything with you into eternity when you die. Nothing except what you've laid up in heaven. I've never seen a U-Haulet following a hearse to the cemetery. <laughs> but you can send it ahead. And then, fourthly, instant popularity instead of approval by God. Become more concerned about what people see than being approved unto God. And the scripture says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's all kinds of persecution. We have persecution when you receive Jesus Christ. People may laugh and sneer. That's a form of persecution. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, said Paul. And we all have our share if we really live for Christ. It's not easy to follow Christ. I want to tell you, it's tough to be a Christian. It's tough to be an all-out Christian. Yes, the Apostle Paul said, I take pleasure in mine infirmities and reproaches and necessities, in persecutions and distresses. In Christ, you see, he said, I, take, I find pleasure in it. While you're going through all the difficulties and problems and turmoils of this life, there can be a pleasure and a joy down deep in your heart that no one will ever know about except those that know Christ. And that's a thrilling thing, to have that peace in your heart and the pleasure and the joy in your heart by knowing Christ. Now I want to take as our text tonight a passage in the 12th chapter of Hebrews. And this word yet once more signifies the removing of all those things that are shaken as of things that are made, but those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. We're living in a changing and increasingly dangerous world. In the midst of all these changes, there are certain things that have not changed and will never change. The first thing that has never changed in all these centuries, the nature of God has not changed. He said, I am the Lord, I change not. Malachi 3, 6. 
The scripture says there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning with God. That means the batting of an eyelash. Not even that much change in God. In all these centuries, he's from everlasting to everlasting. He had no beginning. He has no end. I don't understand that, but I accept it. He's the one thing that we can count on is God. He's unchanging in his holiness. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Revelation 4, 8. God is unchanging in judgment. It says the Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. God is unchanging in love. For God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you. That's hard to believe. That's hard to take in. But God loves you. And if you were the only person in the whole world, God would love you. And he would have sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. God is love. That's one thing I want you to remember when we leave that we've said. And then the second thing, the Word of God has not changed. Not only the nature of God has not changed, but the Word of God has not changed. This Bible is the Word of God. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. And what you read in this book stands forever. It's a thrilling thing to take up this book and know that you are reading something inspired by God and it's his message to the human race. He tells us where we came from. He tells us where we're going. He tells us how to live every day. The third thing that hasn't changed, human nature has not changed. Jeremiah the prophet said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Sin means that I've broken God's laws. I've broken the Ten Commandments. If you have broken one commandment one time, you're guilty of all. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever had lust in your heart? Then you're guilty. We're guilty before God. And because we're guilty, we're under sentence of death. Death in this life and death in the life to come. And then fourthly, the way of salvation has not changed. In all these centuries, the way of salvation is still the same. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved in Acts 4.12. John 14.6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. I can't live the Christian life alone. I'm a failure. Billy Graham cannot live the Christian life. I've tried. I can't do it. But with the help of the Word of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, I can live the Christian life. But He lives it through me. He produces the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace. All of these things are supernaturally produced in you by the Holy Spirit when you receive Christ. Some people say, I'm trying to hold on. You don't need to hold on. He holds you. Just turn loose and let him come into your heart. People are mixed up. They're confused. They don't know what to think. They're just angry. And many people think 
can we hold together as a society? Come to Christ. He will meet all those longings and all those needs and give you a new life. He can come into your family. He can come into that office where you've been having trouble. He can come into your schoolroom. He can come into every phase of your life and make you a new person. He can make those ends meet. He can help you meet those payments. He can help you in looking for a job. He can give you total assurance that your sins are gone and that God will never hold you accountable for them again. They're forgiven and he receives you with open arms and he'll do it tonight if you let him. Now tonight I want you to turn with me to Acts, the book of Acts, the 11th chapter and the 26th verse and the latter part of the 26th verse the latter part of the 26th verse of the book of Acts. We read these words. And the disciples, now the word disciple means learner or follower, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now Paul and Silas had been at Antioch preaching for many months. They'd been holding evangelistic crusades getting hundreds of people to receive Christ. They had established a great church. And in derision, the people round about them began to call them Christ ones, Christ followers, Christians. That's where the word Christian was first coined, followers of Jesus Christ. Now tonight I want to speak on the subject, how to live the Christian life. Now no one can live the Christian life until first he's been to the cross and received Christ as Savior. Christ died on the cross. Christ shed his blood for our sins. But you must come and receive Christ. That is an act of your will. All right, that's a Christian. Christ dwelling in the heart. A personal encounter with Christ. Receiving Christ as Savior and Lord. That is a Christian. But how to live the Christian life? That's another thing. How to live the Christian life? The Christian life is one of growth. We start out as children and we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now some quick rules. First, the first rule is one in prayer. We are to spend time every day in prayer. Now may I make a suggestion? You should have a definite time and place every day to pray. You have an appointment, you have an interview with Almighty God. You say, I don't feel like it. All right, your, your emotion, your body says, I don't feel like it. My mind says, I don't feel like praying. My will makes me go and spend time in prayer because prayer is work. Prayer is work. And many times you make yourself keep your appointment with God and out of some of those moments come your most precious moments and some of your greatest answers to prayer. And then the second thing, is reading the Bible. Now the purpose of the Bible is to testify of Jesus Christ. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation points to Christ. God has a message for you in this book. Read it, study it, meditate on it. Now here's how to read the Bible. Read it reverently. It's an interview with Almighty God. Read it with expectancy. Come to the Bible expecting God to speak to you and read till he does speak to you. Now, maybe you'll only read one verse. Meditate on that verse. Maybe you'll read a whole chapter. Meditate on that chapter. 
Come with expectancy that every time you open the Scriptures, God has a message for you. And then read it with dependence. The Holy Spirit inspired the writing of this book, and the Holy Spirit can interpret this book to you. And then take adequate time with the Bible. Don't just read a verse and do it as a duty and as a ritual and close the Bible. Before you leave your room in the morning or before you leave the house, spend a half an hour in prayer and Bible study and Bible reading, and I'll tell you the day will go totally different. And then thirdly, if you're going to live the Christian life, there must be discipline in your life. It's a way of discipline. And all the way through the New Testament, you'll read words like this describing the Christian life. Fight, wrestle, run, work, suffer, endure, resist, agonize, put to death. All of these are New Testament words describing the Christian life. It is to be a disciplined life. We are to discipline our minds, the things that we read, the things that we think. Our tongues are disciplined too. We say, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Our time is disciplined. We redeem the time because the days are evil. This body of mine is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in me. The Bible says that with my body there is to be self-control. Self-control. Meekness. Blessed are the meek, said Jesus. That's what meekness means. It means temperance, self-control. I'm to live a disciplined life. And then next in the Christian life, there is the church. You've heard of Robinson Crusoe Christians, haven't you? Trying to live solitary Christian lives? I tell you, the Bible doesn't know anything about it. The Christian fellowship is not optional. It's essential. It's commanded. Get into the church and get to work for Christ. And then last of all, the Christian is to witness for Christ. Now, how do you witness? You witness by the way you live, the smile, the courtesy, the thoughtfulness, the graciousness. You're witnessing for Christ. And if you live a changed life in which Christ is living in you and radiating out through you, other people will be attracted to you and they'll say, what's your secret? And you'll say, I know Jesus Christ. And you have an opportunity to witness for Christ. Oh, give your life to Jesus Christ and let him live in you and be a shining witness for Christ. Become salt in your community. Become a light in your community. Let the people know where you stand for Christ. Live a clean and honest and pure and wholesome life. Now tonight, I want you to turn with me to the eighth chapter of Acts, the eighth chapter of the book of Acts, beginning at verse 26. Verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a nobleman of great authority, under the queen of Ethiopia, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? 
And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before a shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the nobleman answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet? This, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the nobleman said, See, here is some water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. And the nobleman saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Now I want you to look at this African. He was an African nobleman, a man obviously of great education and high standing. He was the treasurer of a great empire, serving his queen. And here we get a picture of his world. It was a world in which there was a great deal of persecution and strife. It was a world in which the blood of Christian martyrs were flowing everywhere. Persecution had come to Jerusalem, and now the disciples had been scattered, and he went up to Samaria, and he was preaching the gospel in Samaria. And he had a great revival. In fact, one of the greatest Awakenings in history took place up in Samaria, and Philip was preaching to great crowds. He was an evangelist. And did you know that every Christian ought to be an evangelist? Paul wrote to Timothy and said, do the work of an evangelist. The word evangelist means herald. He's a herald of truth, God's truth. I don't make up the truth. It's God's truth that I'm heralding, that I'm speaking, I'm announcing good news that God loves you and is willing to forgive you and change you. And Philip was an evangelist having tremendous success when suddenly in the middle of the great awakening and great crowds of people and hundreds coming to Christ, in the middle of all that, God said, leave and go down to a desert place in Gaza. Well, there was nobody down there in that desert to leave this great evangelistic awakening, to leave this great revival and go down to a desert, but Philip didn't argue with God. He didn't debate. He obeyed God immediately. So Philip had been led by the Spirit of God to go talk to one man, and preaching to one person may be the greatest sermon that I'll ever preach. I have had the privilege of preaching to great crowds all over the world. But I believe that some of the greatest opportunities I've ever had have been with one person. You see, I think one of the greatest sermons Jesus ever preached, he preached to Nicodemus, just one man. One of the greatest sermons Paul ever preached, he preached to a governor, Felix. So you can talk to one person. And it may be more important than this great crowd here tonight that I'm talking to. Just witnessing to one person about Jesus Christ. That's what Philip was doing.
God had brought him from a great evangelistic campaign with thousands of people down to talk to one man because God wanted the gospel to go south into Africa, south of the Sahara. Do you know what Philip preached to him? Philip didn't preach a sermon on social responsibility. Philip didn't preach about the tyranny of Rome. Philip didn't even preach about the race problem. He didn't even preach about slavery, and there were slaves right there. Because Philip preached first things first. And Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul. That's first. Then you have the ability and the dynamic and the power and the possibility to love your neighbor. God first, your neighbor next, yourself third. That's God's order. Philip preached Jesus. Now Jesus, after you receive Christ, is applied to every area of your life. It's applied to the race problem. He is applied to the poverty problem. He is applied to the slum problem, to the housing problem. There are Christian principles that we apply in our society, but first, we must meet Christ. We must know Him as our Lord and our Savior. Find more biblical encouragement at billygram.org. That's billygram.org. I hope is in the Lord.